Welcome to this week's edition of Terry's Talking Podcast. I'm David Campbell, your host, sports manager at Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. And just off the road, Terry Pluto, back from West Virginia, where he was down in Greenbrier watching the Browns open their 2023 training camp. Terry, how was the trip? Well, I like that part of the country anyway, because I've been around that area doing some hiking and um, the kind of West Virginia, Virginia border. So I, I think it's beautiful. I thought it was a nice thing for them to do. Um, of course, they were staying at the Greenbrier, which was built in 1787 and it's had 20 presidents and lots of guard shacks and everything else. I was at the Quality Inn, so it was a little different approach to it. But, I, you know, there was um, – if they wanted to kind of get away and also have all the tops – luxury stuff going in terms of what the NFL teams need. That place has it. It's, they've created this side business in NFL teams, David, because not only are uh, like Houston and New Orleans have, have part their training camp there, but I was talking to the one time I got to go through the pearly gates over to uh, the actual Greenbrier because there was a little get together at uh, the sports bar, which is in the country club uh, area. Uh, so I'm talking to this um, driver, and, oh, yeah, you guys with the Browns says, you wouldn't believe we're getting teams now that stay here some during the regular season. I said, really? He said, yeah, some of the teams from the West, say you're coming, say you're the Rams and you're playing, you know, Baltimore and New York or something, uh, they're, rather than fly all the way back, they're just going over there, and they're creating a side business on this, um, as if, I guess that's what you want to keep doing, but it's, it's pretty remarkable. It's a nice setting. I, they say they have everything they need, and so we'll see if it matters on come the field. But if in terms of they want to kind of get away and uh, not sleep in an air conditioned little apartment, excuse me, a little actually dorm room and high room like they did in the old days <laughs> when I was a kid, and that was a big deal. Gene Hickerson and one or two guys had the air conditioning. They brought their own portable air conditioning units, and then the other guys would go and pile into the room, and next to Hiram, the closest town was Garrettsville, and Hiram was dry, so I had to drive to Garrettsville and get some beer and sit in front of the air conditioner and watch a black-and-white TV. A little <laughs> different than this. Oh, man, you reminded me, Terry. I used to cover the Bears when I was working in Chicago, like, boy, 30 mm-hmm. years ago, and they used to have training camp in Platteville, Wisconsin, at the University uh-huh. of Wisconsin, Platteville. And it was, I mean, I was back in my car out one night and Walter Payton was in the parking lot behind me putting a mini fridge into his room, yeah, his dorm room. That was exactly I mean, they, they right. stayed in the dorm rooms and it was so crazy. And I remember there was, there was one reporter who worked for a Chicago paper and he used to always ask for the same room in the dorm because his, <laughs> his competition stayed in the room right below and he could hear through the vents everything wow. that they were planning to write for that day. <laughs> So, yeah, we've come a long way from the uh, cinder block yeah. dorm rooms yeah. to the Greenbrier for sure. So. It has. So, we'll, we'll, you know, we'll, do these things help or hurt? I, I don't think they hurt. Let's start with that. I don't see any way that it's a negative because they have NFL caliber facilities, and, and that's a big deal to have all your medical stuff so that you could get these players going. Um, does it pay off in the long run? I don't know. But it, it's amazing to see this luxury resort. I mean, it's kind of like when you're there. And maybe uh, it's not to insult anybody who's ever stayed at the Greenbrier. I'm sure a lot of the people on the podcast have have exactly that type of income to do so. But I was thinking, well, there's us, and then there's the rich, 
And then there's the people who stay at the Greenbrier, where over 20 presidents have stayed. And my guessing is probably half of those folks that are Greenbrier regulars probably have families came, came over on the Mayflower. It just reeks of like old money and, and that kind of stuff. So, so Terry, you were, we, we kind of talked last week. I was kind of throwing out the point that I thought this could be a really important week for the Browns because of all the off-the-field stuff. I mean, they're doing this ramp-up phase where there's not really contact, they're yeah. not lean pads. But what was the? how would you describe in a few words like what, what the vibe was like from the people you were interviewing and what you saw in terms of the 2023 Browns? Like what, what was the vibe? Was it kind of chilled out? Were they, were they fired up? Were they – I, I don't it, know. What was it like to be there? Camp happy. They were just happy because, um, I mean, a couple of people wrote me and said, sounds, sounds kind of boring out there. Well, boring in training camp is good. I mean, no one's had a major injury. No one's getting suspended. No one's waiting to get suspended. Um, there's not a lot of anxiety, say, on the coaching staff that I'm going to be fired if we get off to a bad start. None of that was there. And so then it was just a lot of we have a, Two new coordinators, I'm just speaking like like we, the Browns, would say. We have two new coordinators. They're putting in their stuff. They've come in with a new approach. Um, and the players, I think, were very, very, very receptive. And, you know, players watch. I mean, Watson's looked good since the spring. And he's he looks he's thrown very accurately. He seems very confident. Because they know, I mean, especially the guys like Miles Garrett and Batonio have been around. They've been through so many quarterbacks. And they've watched, just like the media and fans have, all these different guys. And you, a lot of times you know that this isn't a quarterback. It's a lottery ticket that they brought in. I mean, they're just hoping that Johnny Manziel or Deshaun Watson or, you know, name your um, – excuse me, Deshaun Kaiser or – you know, these different guys they have been through, you know, Jason Campbell, all of them, that somehow they would be the guy. I'm not talking about getting to the Super Bowl. Just so he's going to have back-to-back winning seasons. They've not had back-to-back winning seasons since Bernie from like 86 or whatever to 90. I mean, that's it. Yeah, it's really something. And given that history, Terry, and you were writing about this, the Haslams are taking like a very – chill approach i mean you talk about being camp happy and you yeah. wrote about this but the, for, for those who just a little behind the scenes like the haslams don't speak very often right like they speak at training camp and they speak at the end of the season sometimes they'll do something in the middle during the bye week if there's something going on but this was like a rare occasion during the year where we we get to interview them and they they're restrained they're very restrained and very businesslike in the way they're approaching this like i think jimmy haslam's line was we're not going to draw a line in the sand of what the expectations are mm-hmm. just so that the media can put it out there and the fans can, and can do it later because things change. But uh, were you surprised with how patient and kind of, um, you know, just kind of under control the Haslam's were when they, when they spoke to the reporters about like, this is not, we got to do it this season. It wasn't like that. It was just like, well, we're going to, everything's in place and we're going to do the best we can with it. And then we'll decide at the end of the season where we're at. It was kind he of said that. We, well, he, he, cause I pressed him a little bit uh, on it. Tony Grossi's was thinking about lying to sand, and he he wouldn't go on that. And I said, well, well you got to have some expectations. He goes, well, we have high expectations. He goes, I'm just not going to say what they are. And then he also said, because you can have injuries and things that are out of your control. That's one thing they said they've learned over the years. But is my, my column 
that's going to uh, is up online now and will be in Wednesday's paper. It's like now this is, begins the verdict on where the Haslam's and the Browns right on Watson. And that doesn't mean Watson must take them to the Super Bowl. It doesn't even mean that Watson must go back to that quarterback who was the uh, you know, made Pro Bowls right away and, and was the Browns would say top three, maybe top three in football, at least top five. But he's got to be a top 10 guy. And he's got to be a guy that the, you have confidence in, um, that he looks like he knows what he's doing and he's feeling good about how he, he himself was playing, which we did not see last year. You could see how shaky he was. Um, this also was the guy that before he came to the Browns in his career with Houston, he had the highest completion percentage of anybody in NFL history who threw at least 1,500 passes. And this year, starting in um, the mini camps to now, is where you really see the accuracy. You say, well, nobody's getting tackled. It's against air. But we've watched enough quarterbacks over the years, even in those settings, to realize this guy's a lot more accurate than what they've had here in the past. So all that is why I think they're camp happy. They're feeling good. Um, and I think the Haslam's have been also prepped by their PR people. Keep it, you know, keep it real calm. I pressed yeah, a lot about on the decision to keep Stefanski because um, that would have been one, I think, had he been fired, there would have been some fans upset, but I don't think there would have been a tremendous backlash. Uh, there wouldn't have been, Terry, but I, I do think, and, and you wrote about this the last yeah. few days, like when they made that Watson trade, it reset the, the clock, mm-hmm. I think. Like, you know, you, you wrote about this over the weekend last year, the suspension, the two quarterbacks having to prep, you know, for, for the season, it was just the, all the, all the off the field drama. It was just a mess. And you can't really can a coach after I, that. When you put him in that position, I, I think this is the way they had to go with it. And now like, all right, this is it. Here we go. This is it. We got to do it now. And you're going to be judged from this point on. Right. Yes. But to go back to what I, one of the things I did take exception with Stefanski is when that stuff came out about Clowney not playing on third downs and there was no suspension or anything else about that, um, how does that happen? Okay, if your coordinator is weak and doesn't do it, well, the head coach needs to do it. You can't ha- – other players see this stuff. And then you had you know, some of the uh, second-guessing, basically, the coordinator and that. And I just felt that Stefanski was so in his bunker with the quarterbacks, he was missing that side of the ball. Now, what they've decided to do, and you know, they basically have brought in a he- former head coach to be the head coach of the defense. I've written for years, and not the only one to say, when you have a guy like Stefanski, you, your defensive coordinator is the head coach of the defense. But now they have a guy that really has been a head coach and acts like a head coach, and I would be... It would have been fascinating had he pulled that on uh, Schwartz, Clowney being the third. I don't think he would have done it on Schwartz, though. See, that's the difference. I was talking to Gerard Cherry, and uh, you know, local media thing, and he played uh, safety, I think, and, and defensive back for eight years in the in the NFL. By the way, he played for how about a couple of these coaches? He played for Andy Reid, and he played for Bill Belichick. Bill Belichick, yep. Yeah, two of them, and he just said. There are guys who think like Clowney. We were just talking. He goes, 
But when you're playing for Bill or you're playing for Andy Reid, you're just not going to do it. You're just not going to do it because you know it'll come back on you. Even if you think, you know, Miles is getting these breaks and I should have this, you won't do it. If you're on a team that you feel is kind of going nowhere and the leadership isn't that strong and you need your stats, then you might do it. And see, that's what they can't have that. Well, Terry, one of the, last year, one of the things with Clowney was that if Stefanski knew about it and didn't do something about it, that's bad. And if he didn't know about it, that's bad, too. Take your pick. <laughs> and yeah, either one is bad. And you, you flash forward to this year. If something like that happens, it will never rise above the level of Jim Schwartz because he's just so. going to st- he's going to stamp it out. Like before he, it becomes he will. A thing. And, and we may get Stonewall answer. Well, why wasn't so and so in the game? Team discipline. Yeah. internal whatever. We're keeping that inside the hub. I mean, he'll disappear because remember they had stuff like, you know, they had Winfrey, you know, was they could never get a, a handle on him. They had this weird thing where Delpit didn't play the first series or first play of a game. They never talked about what that was. My guess is he was late for some meetings or something on that. Um, but that stuff's got to go. And so well, here, how it's going to go this year is Jim Schwartz is going to say <laughs> – Hey, Kevin, uh, so-and-so did this. I took care of it. I took care of it. He's not <laughs> that's playing. Gonna be, it's going to be He's a 10-second discussion. Go, we're going yeah. with this guy, and, and and Stefanski may say, well, what happened? And Schwartz will say, well, you know, he did this, and, and they should say, fine. Now, you think about this. They have surrounded Stefanski with a former head coach in Schwartz, and I don't think Jim particularly, by the way, wants to be a head coach again. I think he likes being the coordinator. He has some serious health problems the previous couple of years. He's over them now as an eye thing and something else. Um, but he, I think he, he's a football, pure football guy. He doesn't want to deal with all the other stuff. So they have a former head coach, and they have a wannabe head coach in a good way, you know, above a Ventrone. You know, would kind of like to be the next John Harbaugh, the uh, the um, uh, special teams coach who began, who became a head coach. And I know that's part of the reason he was glad to get out of the Cole situation. It's like, you know, he had done a good job of special teams there. They were looking for an interim, and they brought in Jeff Saturday, you know, for the high school coach at ESPN over him. So uh, I, by the way, I had a long talk with him for a story to be done later on, and. He was interesting on kickers, David, because remember uh, Chase McLaughlin, who was here and struggled here. He went over there. Now, granted, you're kicking inside. It's a lot easier, but kicked very well. And I said, why? He goes, you know, he goes, I had Chase before. He said, we picked him up. I think they had Venetary. I forgot who their kicker was that they had. They had a, one of those uh, really good kickers in, with the Colts. He got hurt. They brought in Chase, and he goes, he was something like 9 to 10 field goals for me the first time. So I said, well, are you good at teaching kicker? He goes, well, a lot of these kickers have their own coach like uh, Cade does. He says, but a lot of it is their confidence, You know, keeping them in the right frame of mind. He goes, that's a big part of my job. He says, yeah, there's the technical stuff, but just it's the confidence thing. So he also said that he had York rated by far the best college kicker that year. Um, and he, he said he just he thinks he's going to be good. So let's keep an eye on that and see if this is a guy who maybe can help guys kick better. Not so much because he knows every angle and every wind like Phil Dawson did, but because of 
the mental part of it. Which is huge, as we've talked about many, many times. So, um, so Terry, you're talking about Clowney and the whole thing. Let's transition here to a guy. I think you called him the best, most, the best, most underrated player in the NFL, Nick Chubb. Yeah. And this guy, you know, I mean, we see the offseason videos of him working out and doing, and these bars are just bending, <laughs> yeah. doubling over when he's squatting and everything. But beyond that, uh, speaking of a guy who'll do anything, like I think he was asked these last few days, like well, what do you think of the Browns running more shotgun? Is it going to affect? And he's like, I'll run out of shotgun. I'll run out of the high formation. Yeah, right. He's like, I don't care. Um, I'll make it work. And that's yeah. that's really the sign of somebody who's uh, all in on the team. And I think the Browns are have rewarded him for being the way he is. With what is he? He's the only running back in the league with a contract over ten million dollars in extension. So yes, it seems like this relationship is really what they hoped it would be on a, for both of them, both the player and the team. Isn't it amazing you could be, you know, arguably the best running back in the NFL and underrated and ignored almost <laughs> because of his personality. Uh, I have a long story coming up on Chubb that will be later on in the week. A couple of things there. I pressed him some on this where he said I'll do all these things. And I said, well, don't most running backs prefer – to run with the quarterback under center. And he paused. He said, yeah, you do, because you do have a better look at the, um, you know, the defense. He said, I could run on the shotgun. Coach. I just, he just wants to win. He really does. And, you know, like when there were some running backs back then, like Christian McCaffrey, and I think somebody else got a contract that was, bigger than what Chubb signed right after that. Of course, it turned out Chubb got in just under the wire when all of a sudden the NFL decided to hate it, totally hated running backs. And he would just, I remember he said then, Cleveland drafted me. I'm comfortable here. I like it here. And I think Chubb likes the fact, too, that it is a smaller market. You know, he just, almost like Jose Ramirez, just let me play ball. Let me, let me play ball. I like it here. And the Browns also have not, I mean, we, we get into why is he on the field in the fourth quarter, where, but they've not abused him in terms of how many carries and that stuff. But he he's just a remarkable guy. And, you know, the only time Chubb opens up in interviews, usually you have to ask him about something or somebody else. Like he would always be praising Kareem Hunt or I remember Dearness Johnson, his fellow running backs. And, of course, then he went to bat for the running backs not getting paid. You know, the brotherhood of the running back which is a fascinating thing to, you could argue running backs are overrated before. Now I'll turn around and say they're underrated. You can't just find one on the corner and they act like that. Yeah. I mean, you see a player like Saquon Barkley. I think he yeah. took a one year, $10 million deal today. Yeah. One year for a guy yeah. who was taken as high as he was in the draft. It's really, it's, it's crazy. It really is. But that's what, that's what analytics have shown these guys and they're, and they're really devaluing, the running See, back. If I were the Giants, what I would have done is you could have done one of those. Like Chubb signed three years for $36 million. He's like 17 up front. And um, I think the rolls into like next year, I think it's $12 million and $4 million buyout. Something like that. You don't, because you know how they do it in the NFL. He doesn't have to be just a strict this. But it's, it's almost like they're just rubbing it in his face. You know, this is it. I mean, we ought to have $10 million rubbed in our face, but remember, everything is context. And when you were running back, and, and Bar, uh, Saquon's had some injuries, unlike Chubb, 
you know, Chubb just, I think Chubb's missed seven games in the five years he's been here. He's like, I haven't missed He's like missed seven games. He's lost six fumbles. He doesn't fumble. He doesn't miss games. He doesn't complain. I think he'd like him to throw the ball to him more. I really do. Let's see if they do that. And meanwhile, he was all in on Jerome Ford too, by the way. Of course, he's going to, he's going to do that part of, he's going to take care of their younger brother, uh, running back brotherhood. And I love that stuff about him. Yeah. So next week, Terry, I want to get into a little bit. Let's remember to do this. I want to talk about how many receptions we think Nick Chubb should have this season. What is the right number? So we'll do that next week. So um, anything else on the Browns or any, any sleeper people you you saw down there, sleeper players, sleeper coaches. I don't know anything you want to bring up before we wrap up. Yeah. A couple things. Chris, I've liked this guy for a a while. Day one Baldwin, the receiver, you know, he's been kind of on practice squad in this. He always looks good in these situations to me. And he's, he's actually looked good a couple times he's got in the games. But the other guy that jumped out, and we'll see when the preseason games start, Tanner McAllister from uh, Ohio State, undrafted safety. And I was footing with Gerard Cherry there too, and he plays safety in the NFL. So I was asking, I go, well, that guy's really athletic. He's kind of tall. And he's watching, he goes, that guy's got a chance to be pretty good. So keep an eye on Steve McAllister there. We're going to get to see a ton of these undrafted guys. I mean, I wish I could tell you about Dorian um, Thompson-Robinson, DTR. But, um, by the way, even in this very slow ramp-up, whatever, Watson is getting a ton of the reps already. I mean, they are really preparing him uh, as they're working on these different formations. And Elijah Moore is lining up in the backfield. He's lining up everywhere. So, um but anyway, McAllister is my guy, so we'll see. Well, and all you need to do is ask uh, the coaches down at Ohio State about what he meant to the Ohio State defense last couple of years, and yeah, it, it, it translates. It translates, and he, and he so. didn't get drafted. And I thought, well, maybe he wasn't that fast. Maybe he wasn't that fast on the stopwatch. I didn't look at it, but he looked fast on the field in these things. And he was out there with these different safeties. Uh, that Rodney McLeod they brought in, by the way, he was really work, working with some of the younger guys in, in those drills too. He could tell he's he really is the assistant safeties coach, and that's a that's a good thing. Yeah, that's a big reason they signed him. So it's good to see that's happening already. So hey, before we take a break, hey Terry, we do have a, a hey Terry question. I figured I'd throw up here since we're talking Browns. It's from longtime listener Caleb Mackey from Columbus, and. Um, you wrote a column over the weekend about the evolution of Andrew Barry, which was really interesting mm-hmm. about how he has gone from being an analytics guy to a much more um, – he's taken a much more holistic approach to the job. But here's the question from Caleb. I want to get your thoughts on it. He says, hey, Terry and David, I had a question for you about Andrew Barry. Overall, I feel like he's a keeper, but that doesn't mean there isn't room for improvement. He's done a tremendous job bringing in real talent onto the roster with smart trades and free agency moves for affordable players that fit the coach's needs. He and his staff appear to have a real knack for getting the most out of the salary cap in creative ways. However, you mentioned something recently that I hadn't realized. He's failed to draft pro bowl caliber talent. Much like the way Stefanski needed to reassess his coaching staff and make upgrades on defense and special teams, does Barry need to reassess his college scouting and draft staff? Is this something the Browns are looking to change? Are they relying too heavily on analytics and ignoring good old-fashioned John Dorsey-style talent evaluation? I'd love to hear Terry's behind-the-curtain assessment on this. And Again, that's from Caleb Mackey. All right, Terry, what do you think of what Caleb is asking? I brought it up because I think it's fair. 
you know, you would like to have at least got one Pro Bowl guy out of um, the different picks he's had. Um, I don't really know what they're doing behind the scenes on that. But if the fact that they've moved away some from analytics on Chubb's contract, some of these other things, trading, you know, they've traded up in drafts or trading first round picks, um, that shows he's open to new ideas. I mean, Haslam said something to me, and, and actually I had already written it in my column. I, I was looking at Andrew Berry. He's 36. He got the job at 32. As Haslam said, he's like younger than my kids. And like a lot of – I think we, we realize younger players need time to develop and grow. We often don't give that same leeway to GMs and coaches uh, on the job. So uh, I they they got to look at that scout, college scouting because they – they come up with guys, but they're, they're not quite – they don't just jump off the page. I don't know, David. I mean, who who, who is he drafted? He just – you have a wow factor. Not really anybody. Um, I mean, he had to take a left tackle when he took yeah. Jedrick Wills. He had to. And Jedrick Wills has had up and down moments. There's no doubt about it. And this mm-hmm. is a big year for him. Uh, but And the other thing, Terry, and we, the, the trade for Watson took two bullets out of his holster. I yep. mean, with the last two drafts, he did not have a first-rounder this year. He didn't have a first-rounder last year, and he's not going to have one next year. Yeah, so, and also there were some seconds and third, you know, stuff that you can't – you don't have to trade. Um, I wonder if he's getting more like – I remember at one time the, the um, Guardians, I was talking to one of their top people, and they were saying – because I said, well, you guys sometimes struggle in the draft, but you really do a good job. Uh, with getting these prospects he says well just think about it the draft you're you're trying to evaluate they would say high school college kids you know different ages but all right so let's just put it in the football contest you know the kid at kent state versus the kid at ohio state versus some d3 kid at my union you know it's across the board whereas if he's been in the league a while you've seen him against NFL caliber. So you turn around as they did with Elijah Moore. Um, they, they gave up their second to drop back 20 picks and picked up a third and picked up Elijah Moore, who they had liked. And now they had seen him at least have one good year. And you come in, he's just more of a finished product. And I, he has a better eye. Or it's like, he's like, unlike, he was probably like the average fan going, Dallas just wants to dump Amari Cooper? <laughs> I mean, we'll I'll, take him. I'll work on that cap problem. Well, to give me that cap problem. I, I wanted who had missed like nine games in six years or whatever. He's another guy with great durability. Doesn't say a word. He's sort of like Nick Chubb of the, of the receiving room. It's like, don't let him, don't get him. I'm not getting off the phone on this one. And so he's good at that. And I think he's going to continue to grow. Um, but they, you really do need to find that second rounder that make like JOK. They need him to 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 step up and and be something. You know, stay healthy. Um, Newsom, I thought was going to be better than he was, and you know, after his first year, and then last year, I don't know, he got into the. the I don't want to play the slot or sort of. It was a funky year. Then he, you know, he takes Emerson the third round, and maybe he ends up being his future Pro Bowler. I don't know. Yeah, but, there's just there's a lot there's some home runs like that, and then there's some Anthony Schwartz. Oh yeah, you know, like it's it's just 
there's been a lot of ups and a lot of downs. But I'll tell you one thing the Browns do have going for them, Terry, is uh, you, we were talking about Saquon Barkley, the Giants. Sometimes you see where the GM front office is halfway through a tenure when the new coach comes in or vice versa and GMs get rid of guys they didn't draft. Yeah. I mean, the, Brown, the Browns have always talked synergy with under the Haslam's. And th- this timeline matches up like the, the coaches in the, in the front office are in this together with the same time frame. And they're going to see how it goes this year. And they'll either keep everybody or get rid of everybody. And the same thing, if, if they keep it and see how it goes next year, it's going to all go away at the same time. I think if it does, you never know. One but. of my arguments is in general, maybe just because I, I kind of lean more towards the front office thing is if you're unless you're really unhappy with your GM, say the first coach doesn't work out. Give him a second coach because he might have learned something, by the way, in the hiring of the first coach to make it better. Because as you mentioned, the new GM comes in and what does he do? Cleans house. Yeah, because he goes, well, they fired that guy. So I get rid of most of his players. Yep. And, you know, what helped John Dorsey, as you mentioned, I mean, John Dorsey had a number one pick. He had a number, uh, was it four pick? And. He, he hated analytics, but analytics led to him getting Nick Chubb in the second round. Remember, because they took on, I think, uh, what was that quarterback's name from Houston? Uh, they took uh, for $15 million, basically, they took on his contract. And um, we'll think of it in a moment when we come back. So <laughs> I know who it is, too, and I yeah, can't remember I can his see name. Him. He's tall <laughs> and awkward and made $15 million, and he became Nick Chubb. Yep. Yep. And the other thing that could happen, Terry, is this team has unimaginable success and they're on their way to some great things and they stay together for a long time, like some of yep. the other great franchises in the league. So we'll see. That's the drama and that'll be some of the fun behind this season. So, all right, we're going to take a break, Terry. When we come back, I want to ask you if you feel better, the same or worse about the Guardians' chances to win the Central. And I have the next change that Major League Baseball needs to make and I want to run it past you. All right. Okay. All right, we'll be right back on Terry's Talking. We're back on Terry's Talking, David Campbell and Terry Pluto. And, Terry, we were able to look up the name of the quarterback during the break. It was Brock Osweiler. I can't believe we couldn't pull that out. Um, well, and I remember... he, it's not like he went on to fame after he got let go here. In fact, if I remember, they let him go before the regular season began because Hugh Jackson didn't like him. Yep, and I remember, I'll never forget uh, Doug Maurice, our colleague, longtime colleague here at the, at the Plain Deal in Cleveland.com, was interviewing him at his first press conference and said, uh, what makes you think you can be a starter? And he says, well, all you got to do is look at my tape. And Doug said, well, a lot of people did look at your tape from last year, and it was terrible. Oh, <laughs> and Bro- so he and Brock got into a little tiff, and uh, yeah. that, was, that, was, that was something. So, All right, Terry, let's get into the Guardians here. Okay. Um, do you feel better, worse, or the same about the Guardians' chances in the division after last week? I kind of asked you last week how you were feeling. Um, it's been a tumultuous week. They're holding it together with kind of bubble gum and paper clips here with the pitching staff. What are you thinking? Worse. I just don't, I don't know how they're doing it this far. That it's like with, with these pass, passing week, the medical reports on the uh, pitchers seem to get uh, worse. And by that, I mean they just threw Bieber on the 60-day. They won't say exactly what's wrong. First, remember, it was forearm, then it was elbow, and then, then it's 60-day injured list. Um, we're still in no man's land with McKenzie, what's going on there. And Quantrill, they're going slow. Remember, all three of those guys – 
made every single start last year. That's why they ended up winning 92. There were other factors going in. But those guys were just chewing up the innings and pitching extremely well. And so the bullpen wasn't overrun. And I just don't see how they will keep this thing, as you said, together because you need so many. I mean, Daniel Norris is up here pitching. They're just looking for guys. Um, and they're getting some nice stuff from Xavier and Curry. And, and of course, uh, Bybee has, has been terrific. Uh, I was I'm very, I was encouraged by Logan Allen. I knew he made a couple of bad pitches the other day, but he got through seven innings. Um, Gavin Williams is – I've been trying to really think of, like, the last pitcher they had, like Gavin Williams. I mean, he, a little bit like uh, Jarrett Wright has some of that, but he didn't have the uh, uh, the breaking ball on that that uh, – that Gavin has. I mean, Gavin is big time talent and looks like big time composure too. So that's all exciting, but they, none of those guys threw more than 132 innings last year. And they are so petrified after the arm injuries they've had with their um, upper level starters. I, they're not going to just let them pitch a lot of innings. So I just don't see it. Yeah. The thing is, Terry, they're trying not only to stay in contention, but also they're, they don't want to ruin somebody for next season. Like you Mm -hmm. said, overusing them or, uh, pushing them too hard. They're on a very tight innings watch here with a lot of these guys. So so I guess the next question is, what can they do? And with Shane Bieber kind of out of the mix for the trade deadline coming up on August 1st, uh, Ahmed Rosario, a lot of teams would love to have a veteran shortstop. He hasn't had a great year defensively. He hustles all the time. I mean, he scored that huge run the other night to win the game when he didn't stop running. Um, could you see him being kind of one of their key trade pieces here? And if so, how would you see the shortstop position falling out if they were to deal him for some for some pitching or an outfielder, I guess? The, the market on Rosario has been bad for the last year and a half. It, it just seems like he has been labeled as really mediocre overall. Analytics doesn't like him. Is, is, he doesn't walk that much. Um, it, but the eye test is different now. Defensively, this is his—he's this is his worst year of the three years he's been here, and I'm not sure why that is, uh, because he certainly is like 27 years old or something. It, it's not like it's an age thing. Um, so I don't know what they can get for him. Maybe something. I would take him if I were another team, but you're not going to get much in return. Um, and will they? put together, you know, guys like Angel Martinez and Gabriel Arias or something other and try to slap some prospects together to see if they can get somebody in return. Uh, Maybe, but I, I just think they're stuck. The roster is what it is now. Maybe because he's my wife's guy, but the shortstop that I would play if they traded uh, Rosario would be Rocchio. And remember, she's the one that she was on to Stephen Kwan in 2021 Rokio is another guy she spotted. It takes one game of spring training, and she's got a guy. Uh, so Rokio right now, and he's only 22. So keep that in mind. We're talking about stats at AAA at 22. Batting 296, 806 OPS. Month of July, he's hitting 379. Uh, he's very good defensively. Um, 283 against lefties, 301 against righties. Um, there's your shortstop. And now some people say they may want to play Arias there. I guess you could try that. Arias just looks like such a mess at home plate. Yeah, some some interesting options there, Terry. I guess the the thing. Do you think they need to make a move to stay in this thing? 
What if they stand pat? Are, do you think they have a shot or not? Or do they have to do something here? I mean, the move that would have kept them, helped them win it, would have been to trade Bieber for a guy who could hit. But that's gone. Who else are you going to trade? I mean, they're not going to trade. Yeah, you want to turn around and move Tanner Bybee or Gavin Williams Ooh, or even man. Logan Allen. Yeah, you'll get some stuff there. But that would be insane to do that. I and don't you'd be s- taking from a, a position of need already to yeah, yeah to do I what? Mean, there, there's where you turn around and you get you know somebody's top prospect or somebody's been in the league a year or two and hitting some home runs. But you, you, you can't do that. Savali, I don't know what his market is even though he's fished fairly well for them. He's been on the injured list five times since 2021. Five. All right, well, let's talk about a couple of moves they could okay. make, Terry, internally. Uh, I don't think they can go on like this a lot longer without injecting no. some kind of mm-hmm. energy or some kind of different uh, assets into this mix. Um, Oscar Gonzalez, SpongeBob still held hostage. Yeah. Day, day, what is it, day 47. Uh, we'll have to start keeping, keeping count of that. Um, do you think that's going to happen? And if so, I give soon? up. I'm, I mean, I mean <laughs> the last time I wrote it, I go, this is the 1,421st time I'm mentioning Oscar Gonzalez, bring him up and let him play against, uh, left-handed, at least left-handed pitching right now. Oscar's hitting, um, 273, 789, um, OPS. He's got 11 homers, 56 RBIs. Um, in June, he batted 327, July 250. He said four homers in each of those months. He said 362 against lefties. Uh, I know part of the reason for the hesitation has been they've actually platooned David Fry in right field with Brennan, and Fry has has performed. Um, I mean, an interesting thing to do would be Sandy Alomar has been very upbeat on Fry as a catcher, and they're working on him with that, especially if you kind of go into let's play the kids mode. You could just have Fry be your backup catcher to um, Bo Naylor. Mm-hmm. And, in fact, you know, Naylor's a lefty hitter. Fry's a righty hit. You, you could platoon them. Because I don't think you have to catch Naylor seven days a week or anything like that at all. Um, so that's it. And then you could still bring up SpongeBob and let him platoon in right, in right field with Brennan because Brennan can't hit 200 against lefties. That's something. But I, I just don't have a – I don't have any good ideas. I mean, I was looking at pitchers in the minors. How about this? Plezak. What do you think Plezak's ERA at AAA is? Seven and a half? Oh, no, he's down to 649. Oh, okay. How about Hunter Gaddis? Five and a half? He's at 646. So they're right in the same territory. Uh, they could bring up Karen Chuck. Haven't let me let me them. jump in here with a letter, Terry. We have yeah, a, a Karen Check letter. Okay, this is from Neil in Jamestown, New York. Since we're on Karen Check, he says I have a theory on Karen Check's future and why he's not back up. His twelve to six curveball is so nasty and has such a huge break that he'll never reliably get it over the plate. He needs a third pitch. And then he says on a similar stuck at Columbus note, I doubt the guard, Guardians believe that Oscar will ever be able to control the strike, strike zone. But uh, is, is Karen Check somebody who could come back up? I know they've been trying to work with him on control, not just around the plate, but also just like composure control. Mm-hmm. Uh, but is he someone they could get some innings out of to get him through these next few weeks here? Why not? Would you rather see Daniel Norris or Karen Check? 
I'm not. This is not beat up on Norris time. I'm just saying. I mean, Norris was once a very hot prospect. That's deep in the rearview mirror. Right now, Karen checks for an 11 and third innings at Columbus. He struck out 21. He's walked six. Uh, I mean, I'm like, why not bring him up? Especially they, at least what they're saying publicly is that he's been working hard. His attitude's in the right place. And as for Oscar, okay, I'm going to bring up a guy that I didn't think you talk about not controlling the strike zone. Now he did walk a fair amount, but his strikeouts are ridiculous. And I never imagined this guy would do what he's doing since he was traded. And I'm talking about Will Benson. Will Benson in triple a in 641 plate appearances. Keep that in mind. 641 struck out 168 times. So basically he was striking out almost every three plate appearances. He batted 243 in that time in AAA, 860 OPS, because he walked in at 23 homers. But there were so many holes in his swing. Now with the Reds, he's hitting 287 with uh, six homers and 143 at best, 907 OPS. I, I, I never saw it coming. My view is if Will Benson could do that, at least in the short term, you know, that's – 1,454th time a SpongeBob request <laughs> is being put in. Um, and to, just to see, because he certainly controls the strike zone uh, better than Ben. All right. They'll say Benson controls the strike zone because he walks quite a bit. I will say he also strikes out quite a bit. SpongeBob doesn't walk that much. I'm excuse me. But he also, his strikeouts are like every five at bats or they're not bad. There, I'm done. All right. No, that's good. That's good stuff. They need to do something, Terry. I think we're going to yeah. see something the next few days here. They're they're wrapping up this series against the Royals, and then they are out of town to play the White Sox for four, and then they're at Houston next week. So it can't go on like this. It's too stressful on yeah. every part of the team. Um, so I, I think maybe going to the weekend, we might see some change. And I'll just two. throw one other thing back. When you have a guy like Karen Sheck, if he did do what they told him to do, at least try to, and he sent him down, Bring him back. And if SpongeBob was trying to do what they say, even if you're not as pleased with it as you like, bring him back. Because sometimes these guys need to know that they weren't just sent down there, even though they told you to work on this stuff and then forgotten. All right. Well, I'm going to spend two minutes here. I got something off of Saturday night's game I want to bring up, Terry. We've seen the pitch clock, which has been great. The the bigger bases are nice. Steals are up. This is the next change that baseball needs to make, okay? If a play should have been made defensively and it wasn't made, it's got to be an error on somebody. Mm-hmm. This is ridiculous. All right, Saturday night, the Guardians win this game one to nothing. It's the bottom of the sixth against the Phillies. Jose singles to right, um, and Ahmed Rosario's on base, and he takes off when there's a little bloop pop fly into right field that's up in the air for probably half an hour, and the Phillies <laughs> – None of these guys can catch it. Scott Stott's out there. Marsh is out there. Castellanos is out there. They're all in short right field watching this ball and looking at each other, and it drops. And Ahmed Rosario, hustling like he always does, scores the only run of the night and wins the game. And I'm sitting there watching this. I'm like, how can Zach Wheeler have to take an earned run on a play like that because the, the, the official scores won't call that an error. I mean, I keep thinking of this, you know, that movie National Treasure with Nicolas Cage where he's trying to 
find, uh, you know, lost treasure. There's a scene mm-hmm. in there at the end where Harvey Keitel sits down with him. He's an FBI agent. And he says to Nicholas Cage, he's like, this thing has happened, Ben. And you realize someone has to go to jail. Yeah. <laughs> like it, it's the same thing when, when there's a fly ball that's up in the air for half an hour and it drops in short right field, someone has to take the air on that, even if they don't touch it. And it's not fair to throw that on the pitcher. Um, you know, Wheeler pitched a great game that night. I, I it's it's just a shame to see these balls dropping and oh it's a base hit. Uh, what do you think? Am I crazy? No, uh, a couple of things. One is I first heard about this in 1979 when I was a rookie baseball writer with the Orioles. Of course, the, my mentor who taught me baseball, Earl Weaver, was all for team errors because as he would say, because three Rockheads can't figure out who should catch, call a pop up. You shouldn't penalize the pitcher. So that was the Rockhead pop-up uh, comment, the team air. And I've heard it on and off since then. Now, sometimes they're worried about, well, then the hitter loses a hit. Yeah. I've got an idea. You could give a team air and the hit. The team air will protect the ERA, and the hit still goes to the – because basically it's not the hitter's fault the three Rockets couldn't figure out who to catch the pop-up. Yeah, but it shouldn't. It should have been an out. Like when you get a hit, it should count for being a hit because you hit the ball and it was a hit. Like it shouldn't be because three guys decided they were going to look at each other and 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 act like a bunch of five-year-old little league players. Like, well, I'm just saying I'm trying to get this through the legislature. Yeah, I see. So it's kind of like the team rebound in basketball. Yes, or something, exactly. Right? Yeah, I mean, all right. I mean, if your goal is protect the pitcher's ERA, if your goal is that, you need an error. And if your problem is who do you give the air to, you call it the team air. And then if you don't want to just get the hitters all upset, because they say I have all these line drives that are caught all the time, you give them a hit too. Because basically if the goal is to give the guy, protect his ERA, you protected the team ERA, and you threw the hitter a, a, a little hit. So that's my compromise. You know, the great – Terry compromise, and there you are. And I just thought right, of we'll it. We'll see if we can uh, get that out of committee. And I thought of it now. <laughs> this, after 1979, the team air was put in my head, the Rockhead pop-up rule. And so here we are 5,000 years later, and I got maybe this will work. <laughs> well, you know, Jerome Holtzman invented the save. Maybe you'll get credit for the team air Yes, someday, he did. And, and uh, uh, John Lowe, who was a long-time – baseball writer for the uh, Detroit, um, uh, the evening paper in Detroit, he invented the quality start. I sat at games next to both of those guys. Holtzman was a famous story, and I I hope it's true because it's like one of those that it should be. They had a young sports editor that came in, a guy named Louis Grizzard, who later became a very well-known columnist in Atlanta. For whatever reason, he was a young sports writer. They brought him into Chicago and made him the sports editor in Chicago. I mean, this guy, I lived in Georgia for a while. I mean, he is Georgia. He is Southern. So him in Chicago, in your hometown, would be kind of like you in Valdosta, Georgia. I mean, this would this would have been real <laughs> culture shock. So he's looking at Holzman stuff, who is a venerable guy, and he calls him and says, Jerry, you know, you use like, I don't know, like ducks on the pond, so these baseball cliches. He goes, these are cliches. And he looks at him and he says, kid, 
they may be cliches, but they're my cliches. <laughs> and I'm keeping them. <laughs> yeah, that's right. I made it up. And and actually, uh, Grizzard later, when he would tell the story like that, he goes, and he is the man who invented the save. So if he said he invented those cliches, they probably are, at least some of them, his. That's right. That's so I've right. just invented the, stuff. this rule how you could be happy with your team air, and I'm going to make the hitter happy with this rocket pop-up hit, and we could all be happy. And I'll be telling my grandkids someday, I was on a podcast when Terry Pluto invented the team error, and the rest yes. is history. So. And, and, all right, and, Terry. and the rocket hit on top of that. <laughs> That's right. Um, okay, uh, we're gonna we're running a little late here. Let, I know you have a book recommendation you want to get yes. into this week. Do you want to talk about that real quick? Yeah, it is. Last week, I think I talked about Jeff Shahara's book, uh, The Old Line, on, on Teddy Roosevelt. You know, Shahara is the son of Michael Shahara, who wrote, Killer Angels. Jeff has written many, many historical novels, and uh, you you can't go wrong there. How about another sibling who is doing well? Tony Hillerman. I think many people have heard of Tony Hillerman. Wrote all those mysteries set in primarily New Mexico. Anne Hillerman, his daughter, has taken over the series. She's now written eight different novels, and my I, my wife actually likes them even better than Tony Hillerman's. They're a little more character driven. Her newest one is called The Way of the Bear. So there mm. you are. Check out if you like Tony Hillerman but didn't read any of Anne's books, I think you should grab onto them. And I don't know. I like those are very relaxing kind of books to read to me. And they're well written and it's cool because you learn about Navajo culture and a part of the country that like New Mexico and the Four Corners area I know very little about. Yeah, and summertime is good reading time, so when you have some time off on the weekends or whenever, so uh, pick those up. So, All right, thanks for that, Terry. Um, I think we're done. Anything else you want to get into? I think that's it. All right. Um, a couple of plugs real quick. If you want to send us a question, comment, or something angry that made you mad, we'll, yeah. we'll read that too. Send it to sports at cleveland.com via email, and we will try and get it on next week's podcast. I also want to be sure to mention Terry's newsletter. It comes out every Monday. It's free. Just go to cleveland.com slash newsletters, and you'll get in your inbox every week everything that Terry has written. So be sure to sign up for that. It is free, as I mentioned. So, um, so Terry, I think we might tape on Monday next week, and then we're going to be off for a couple of weeks. So um, we'll try and do that, right? Does that sound good? Sounds fine to me. All right. We'll see you then, everybody. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll talk to you next time on Terry's Talking.